2: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture. It's in the end. Everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. And we've also got back a frequent guest on the podcast, Katie Richards, a staff writer covering the agency world. Katie, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. And we've got Jason Lynch, the staff writer covering television for Adweek. Jason, always good to have you.
1: Hey, great to be here.
2: All right. Well, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about this week's cover story, which Jason wrote. It was a fantastic interview with Elizabeth Moss of Mad Men and now uh, Handmaid's Tale fame. And so we will certainly be getting to that soon. Lots to talk about. Fascinating conversation with her. Uh, We're going to talk about how Donald Trump's Twitter engagement is going down, uh, which, you know, probably means a lot if you're Kind of person he is where those numbers really matter. But we're going to look at a new report uh, into how that engagement is changing. We're going to look at a uh, really fantastic uh, response ad stunt uh, that came out of IKEA, uh, a really buzzworthy Heineken uh, social experiment. All that's going to be in our ads worth watching section. But first, the news. <laughs> Well the big talk of the past week was certainly an event that no one had ever heard of except maybe the people who paid thousands of dollars to go, which was the Fire Festival. That's F-Y-R-E. This was a supposed to be a two weekend long, like spanning over a week, uh, luxury festival, cost thousands of dollars. And that's if you don't want the VIP access, uh, which could run up well past $10,000. This event was heavily promoted by uh, celebrity influencers, the kind of Instagram 5 million plus kind of crowd. Uh, it was uh, coordinated in part by Ja Rule uh, for some reason. And, uh, you know, just turned into a real kind of classic uh, d- disaster of poor planning. It's like if those guys, what, what was the the group from uh, from Parks and Rec, uh, John Ralphio and uh, and Aziz Ansari's character, like the do, do you guys remember what I'm talking about? I don't. No, I, d- I didn't really. I, I didn't make it that far. It was called like 24-7 or something. Anyway, they ran this like terrible events and experiential marketing company. And it's like if they had run a week-long festival, there was no food, there was no entertainment, there was nothing. It was basically just a bunch of, uh, you know, the, the stereotype is a bunch of wealthy millennial kids ended up going out there for what they thought was going to be this amazing experience on a private island that used to be owned by Pablo Escobar, uh, which I don't think is actually true. And uh, <laughs> it just turned into a, uh, a complete disaster and was really uh, the laughing stock of, of Twitter for a solid week there. Um, Katie, you covered this for us uh, mostly from the perspective of the role that celebrity influencers played in this And my, I guess my question, the conversation that kind of started that story was just you and I talking about is you know is this event going to finally get people to stop? taking celebrity influencers at their word. I mean, there's always been a lot of skepticism about how involved celebrities are in these products and in these things that they pitch so, you know, so so happily on their Instagram feeds. What did you hear from, uh, from your sources when you asked that question about whether this would be a turning point for how people look at endorsements from celebrities?
3: Well, the feedback I kind of got was yes and no. It will kind of change things. Um, yes, in that it will change the way people and brands look at paid-for posts. So when a celebrity is promoting a certain product or an event and they are paid money to post about it on Instagram and they just kind of slap a hashtag ad on the end of it, or in many cases they actually don't do that, which the FTC recently came out with a new set of guidelines to kind of maybe hopefully change that. But the what people were saying was, you know, This is a prime example of why those posts don't work because the celebrities themselves are not actually involved in the planning, in how these events are actually coming together. They're just saying, come to this really cool event. I'm going to be there. It's something I would do. I would spend this much money to go to a private island and party all weekend. And it turns out that they actually have no sway or no input on how the event actually turns out. So it can be pretty harmful for brands or even these celebrities who are promoting these events in the end when something like this dumpster fire that is fire festival actually happens
2: now jason you've been covering hollywood for a a very long time and i'm curious you know for for decades the kind of uh stereotype or the the approach was that actors tried to avoid doing commercials especially movie actors they tried to avoid cheapening themselves by peddling you know products and goods uh that's kind of been flipped on its head now with celebrities really peddling just kind of garbage you know it's like these people with 10 million instagram followers and they're always selling like protein powder or you know just some like completely low cost thing where someone obviously just put quite a bit of money in this case you know kendall jenner was supposedly paid a few hundred thousand to promote this on her feed which she certainly didn't need coming right out of the pepsi uh, ad blowout Uh, and she promptly i think deleted the uh, instagram post uh, that she had done for this but i mean. I mean, Jason, do you feel like this almost kind of proves what actors used to be worried about happening to their reputation?
1: Uh, I think that it does. I mean, you definitely see uh, there's this new generation that grew up with social media and they're looking at these opportunities in a different way. These discussions are not really happening. You know, I don't think that Kendall Jenner was sitting in a conference room with people debating whether this, you know, Instagram promotion was good for her brand. It's just something you do it or you don't. Uh, as opposed to other actors, and I think we'll talk. Meanwhile, we I talk about this a little bit later with my Elizabeth Moss interview, where you really have to put some thought into uh, becoming part of a of, of a campaign or participating as a spokesperson, and and those considerations aren't really given for Instagram. You know, I think the feeling is, oh, well, I'm just sharing so much. This is just one in a sea of maybe posts that I'll be doing, and you know, as we see here, there's going to be some accountability that maybe there hasn't been in the past.
2: Yeah, I feel like Kendall Jenner is going to become this like case study and just taking the check and smiling. You know, it's like she's had two of these kind of radioactive endorsement deals in the span of what, uh, two weeks?
0: You know, festivals are also kind of tricky. I remember one time I went out to an agency out west and did a profile on them. Uh, and they had they had been sort of a, a small market agency out there who suddenly got this big you know their big break as an agency was they they somehow got the media account for this um, big touring German beer festival in the u s and what turned out happening was um, they fronted a lot of the money for media buys kind of down the road this festival was kind of i don 't know they were not financially solvent at all and they were they were making you know they were making money as they went, and they sort of went belly up like halfway through. And this agency was stuck with, I think, about a million dollars of of money that they never got back. From you know, and for a, for a small agency, it was it was horrendous. So I think uh, festivals in particular, if you're you know if you're an endorser or or an agency working with with a new festival, you got to be super careful because these things
2: do implode fairly regularly. You know, what's funny is like just from a, just as a frequent speaker, I, I've learned to. Uh, you know, to to put it bluntly, like get the money up front, um, because I and and luckily I've not been burned by this too hard, but there have now been uh, two incidents for me where. You know, I was uh, kind of involved in an event that seemed very legit. It had been happening for several years and then just fell through. And like in one case, thankfully, I declined because I had gotten the like kind of the, you know, that sense that these guys are, are not really don't, you know, don't really have their act together. And then sure enough, a bunch of people flew in for this big conference in Las Vegas and the conference had been canceled and they hadn't told anybody like you, can you imagine? Like flying in, landing. You've got a hotel reservation. You've told your boss you're going to this like four day uh, conference, and it was just not there. <laughs> I, I mean, and the and that's that's just that one didn't even get a lot of like attention because it was an industry event, like a digital media event. But um, you know, you have to think this this probably happens a lot more than any of us know about, uh, even from the business perspective. So I've just learned to be a lot more careful, uh, even even if it's just things like oh, we'll reimburse your travel to come speak at this thing, it's like, yeah, yeah, buy my ticket up front (laughs) because I've had a few where like they, they never come back around or they just announce bankruptcy like 10 minutes after closing the event. Well, anyway, uh, I wanted to talk also about a a fun story we had this week on Domino's. Domino's has really become, you know, I think Tim mentioned on a recent podcast that they've really become more of an e-commerce company than a pizza company. Uh, And that really was brought home this week uh, when we saw that they they had uh, built a partnership with IFTTT, which I believe, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, I think is If This Then That. Is that what it stands for? Yes, exactly. If This Then That. And uh, so this is like a, a basically an Internet of Things play. Tim, tell us how it works. Well, I have never used uh, IFTTT, but it's apparently a free online service that
0: allows you if if you use it to sort of create connections among your digital devices. And so, like for example, um, if you get a, if if somebody posts something on Facebook, uh, you can you can set this thing up to send you an, a certain email, or or you send someone else an email. So basically, uh, digital. Uh, triggers uh, cause events uh, to happen between devices. I've never used it, so I'm probably explaining it very poorly. But basically, what this partnership Domino's has come up with uh, with IFTTT is um, users of that service can can now hook into the Domino's tracker, which is that um, the digital uh, thing that, that Domino's users can can tap into to see where their pizza is. So there, I guess there's four different triggers in the in the Domino's tracker. Uh, One is the the orders being prepared. The other is the orders in the oven, uh, order out for delivery, and order ready for pickup. Those are like the four different things that that happen in the Domino's tracker. And so you can use IFTTT now, if you're a Domino's uh, uh, person, to... You know if your order's out for delivery, um, you can have your porch lights turn on if they 're internet connected or you can turn your sprinkler system off if it 's a connected sprinkler system so you know it 's one of these things where you know it really brings the internet of things to life uh, as soon as you order a domino 's pizza and I mean super nerdy um, but like kind of clever too uh, you know we we wrote it up this week, and you know that it's it 's definitely one of those things where you know, no other restaurant brand certainly has done this before and Domino's, you know, really not surprising that they get there first. Uh, I think I has been around for quite a while, probably five or six years at least. Um, but, you know, it remains kind of the, the province of, of uh, like super nerds who are, you know, their whole house is connected and, and, one other thing that that uh one other example that they that they said is that when the order uh is being prepped you can you know you can hook it up to your Samsung Powerbot, which is some kind of vacuum cleaner that you know so if you're having a pizza party um you know you could have it you know your Samsung powerbot like vacuum your house for when your your guests are coming over for a pizza party i mean I don't know how actually useful this is I think it's kind of like the novelty factor um but Domino's has always sort of valued the novelty factor, you know whether it's Ordering pizza by you know by sending emoji. A, a, an emoji or <laughs> yeah. you know that kind of stuff. So yeah, once again, I mean B is the agency behind this, of course, and uh, we spoke to the, a couple of the ECDS uh, from there uh, at CES this year, and they were they were definitely talking up. You know, all of this, uh, you know, sort of ordering innovation that they're they're so well known for. I mean, they've done dozens of these kind of stunts before, but this one definitely gets into the nitty gritty of, of, you know, pretty pretty not very well known tech uh, t- to give kind of a delightful little, little twist on ordering.
2: Yeah, the IFTTT like really got its start at least as far as I can remember with the social media era where you just had all these different platforms and it was kind of inconvenient to jump between each of them. I see. And so you could say like, if I post this to Facebook, tweet. It Or if I tweet something, send it to my blog, you know? And so though I actually used it a few times in those early days for like, oh, if, if my blog RSS gets updated, send it out as an email newsletter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's gotcha, like those were it. the – so this was kind of fascinating to see how it's tied in. I haven't, honestly haven't thought about it in a while, but I love this idea, wh- whether it really – matters or make sense for dominoes like i mean it 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 really highlights the coolness i mean internet of things has just been so kind of silly for so long that this does highlight oh there's practical benefit for for doing this katie uh do you you foresee yourself tying in your pizza order to your your many connected devices
3: i do not have really any connected devices (laughs) i have an echo dot thing um the amazon dot but I really never use it. It just kind of sits there, so probably not. Maybe to turn on music when I'm waiting for my pizza to come. But, but you can also just no. turn
0: on the music. See, this exactly. is the thing I this is the thing I don't really <laughs> get about this this kind of stuff. Like like if your entire life was automated, what do you do? Just you kind of sit there and like let things automatically
2: happen around you.
3: Right. I'd rather just use my phone, which is probably in my hands, and then I can just do it <laughs> right. through my phone.
2: Yeah, there's this very black mirror kind of vibe to the whole thing of just like, you know, yelling to your Google home to order a pizza <laughs> and yeah. then it just triggers like twenty other automatic processes around your house while you just sit there kind of flopping around like just of the hut, you know. Yeah, you know, uh Netflix did a thing, I think it was last year or the
0: year before where they they made this button uh, and if you, you know, if you press the button, it kind of dims your lights, turns on Netflix, orders your food. It does like four or five different things. And that's kind of similar to this, but that was, you know, something you had to build from scratch like they put in all these instructions for exactly how you would build this button. It wasn't just sort of a an IFTTT thing. But it sounds like, you know, the IFTTT it sounds like from David what you said it used to be kind of just about emails and texts and and social posts. Now it's it's more like now that so many more things are being connected, like your the lights in your house and and your vacuum cleaner and probably your fridge and all that stuff. It probably has some more interesting more interesting options for those who who do like to get into this stuff.
2: Yeah, and nothing beats, by the way, the Netflix socks uh, the socks that. Uh, turned off your like pause the show if you fell asleep. You remember those? Yes,
0: because they could they could tell when your heartbeat was slowing down. Like, they <laughs> so could the tell when stuff. you fell asleep, and it would pause your your Socks, show.
2: Socks, pause this show while I <laughs> when I fall asleep. <laughs> That's really really where the IoT kind of ended right there. Um, All right. uh, And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we did have a piece uh, in the last few days about Trump's Twitter engagement. This actually came out of an analysis that the agency Huge did from their DC office. And um, they just dumped all of his tweets uh, into, uh, you know, kind of an analytics machine. And what they came back with was that he is seeing a considerable decline in engagement on his tweets uh, since inauguration. He has actually added millions of new followers. So uh, it's not that he, you know, that everyone's lost interest. He's still gaining followers. But the the post-by-post engagement has dropped about 66%. Uh, he used to get about 206,000 engagements per tweet. Uh, it's dropped to about 71,000. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a few somewhat obvious reasons for this that we mentioned in the article. Uh, most notably, is just that running for office and being the president are two very different things. And I think the kind of stuff he tweets about has changed a lot. Like, he used to never have to tweet anything you know there was no real obligation now he tweets like thank you to this town in florida for hosting me for a rally you know what i mean it's just these things that have no there's no drama there's no excitement it's literally just like everyone you know i this factory is good thank you you know, and, and so the content itself, I think, is but I I mean, what do you think, Jason, Katie, either of you have any theories on on kind of why this is?
1: Well, I think part of it also has to and I, I've had the same reaction when I was watching some of his uh, his rally over the weekend. You know, he, he's just doing the greatest hits. It's, he needs some new material. And I understand that there is a portion of his base that just wants to hear the greatest hits over and over again. Tweet Freebird, man. But um uh, you know, and in 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 he it's really just seems the same old, same old. And maybe that wor- was fine when he was running for office. But after a, a straight year of that, it's just hard to engage with those tweets.
2: And, and there's so much kind of. uh you know not say some of it's backpedaling some of it's just he puts so many caveats on everything now that he's actually in office you know it's easy when you're running for office to just say like we're going to lock up hillary we're going to build a wall we're going to kick out every immigrant and then it's like you suddenly realize oh you know as he famously told Reuters you know it, it proved harder than he expected and, uh, you know, and suddenly he's having to kind of back out these things and say, like, eventually, on a long enough timeline, Mexico will somewhat pay for this wall <laughs> if we can get around to constructing it. You know, it's just everything suddenly has 19 qualifiers. He, You know, the other day he said uh, that Andrew Jackson could have stopped the Civil War, or, you know, that there was all this. And then he he starts tweeting about, well, what I meant by that. Is, I mean, that's not interesting. That's not you know that's not engaging content that's just kind of equivocation and and uh, uh i don't know so it's an interesting data point you know for again for a guy who's obsessed with ratings uh and uh and with numbers i'm sure this is actually kind of like the worst criticism you could call him a fascist to his face and it would probably bother him less than telling him that his twitter engagement is going down
0: <laughs> isn't there just a general fatigue too like you could respond to every tweet of his for like a month or two but to do that for 4 years seems unlikely
2: yeah yeah Um, Well, so that is the news uh, for this week. Lots more on adweek.com. Definitely uh, check it out. And for now, we're going to move on to my favorite part of the show each week where Tim rounds up the ads worth watching. Right. Uh We were just talking before the show that th- this is kind of an odd week. It's one of those where it's not necessarily like your traditional TV spots, um, but one of them ended up proving massively popular on our site. Uh, tell us uh, what was going on, Tim. Yeah,
0: so we had a little bit of a viral uh, hit with this story. It was what the, the reaction that IKEA had to the French fashion house Balenciaga making... Uh, a two thousand dollar version uh, of its of its iconic ninety nine cent blue bag. You know everyone knows that the IKEA bag. Um, you know you walk around the store with it. Uh, and They also sell them for for ninety nine cents. So Balenciaga um, created a version that looks very very similar. They they haven't actually co- co- you know publicly said that it's a, a tribute or anything. Um, but I think there was certainly some. You know, they were definitely going for, uh, like, an homage to the, to the IKEA bag because it looks identical except it's leather, and it costs, you know, $2,100 more. So, I, basically, Balenciaga introduced this thing, and, and IKEA, as they often do, um, was decided to have a little fun with it, and they put out a, a social post and a print ad uh, explaining to IKEA fans how to identify uh, an original IKEA blue bag. I, I believe the bag's called Fracta. So it was how to identify an, an, an original IKEA Fracta bag. And, and it was just funny. It was like a, a six-part process, like shake it. you know, If it rustles, it's the real deal. It's multifunctional. You can throw it in the dirt and rinse it off with a garden hose. And uh, one of them was, uh, are you able to fold it to the size of a small purse? If the answer is yes, congratulations. And then one of them was look inside. The, the original has an authentic IKEA tag. And then the final, the final uh, hint Uh, as to how to identify it was price tag, 99 cents. So, you know, it's really, it's kind of a fun thing. Ikea, of course, is, you know, what I love about this brand um, is, you know, they're very sort of... Obviously, design focused, but they're also not afraid to be silly and, and to have some fun. Um, they do a lot of artsy stuff, but they do you know, also a lot of a lot of really funny stuff, and they do it all over the world. You know, this one came from, I believe, their home country of Sweden. Um, Acne uh, is the agency that that helped um, IKEA's in-house agency do this, but they do stuff you know all over the place. Like IKEA USA is a very cool brand, and, and out in Asia Pacific, you know, they did that whole book book thing through BBH Singapore that was really fun, where they. Pretended that the, the the IKEA catalog was this, uh, you know, digital uh, innov- innovative digital thing when, when it really was just a just a catalog. So yeah, I mean, this was you know just one of those things where IKEA is always they always seem to be just right on tone with 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 having fun with things that are that, that are clearly silly. And uh, this was one of the you know really pretty inspired reaction to to uh, you know someone else's product.
2: I you know the thing that may, it occurred to me is there was so much. Attention around this post. I hate those bags. Like, am I the only one? I, it's to me, it's like the worst part of shopping at IKEA, mainly because nothing at IKEA really you know fits in a bag anyway and then it's this like <laughs> ri- the the por- proportions of this bag have always been so ridiculous it's like wide at the top it's really obnoxious to carry around and i was just like hey why would anyone i i don't voluntarily carry that thing in the store anyway uh, you know because it feels like you're carrying around some kind of like tarpaulin or something uh, am i alone in in like hating ikea bags yeah no i know what you mean uh,
0: they're they are kind of awkward to use maybe the leather leather one is is maybe it holds things better <laughs> that's what it's i need it's flimsy but yeah, I mean, they you know they do like they do they did that really fun billboard where they put all the furniture sideways and everything. Like you know, IKEA is one of those brands. Like, along you know, there's a handful of brands that we write about uh, on Adweek.com that really just everyone engages with like immediately. And IKEA is probably at the top of that list, if not close to the top.
2: My my personal favorite in that vein of how they balance this like high end with low end thing was when they had and I'm I'm going to butcher his name, but they had like that German literary critic. I think it's Helmut Karasek. Um, but they had him review the Ikea catalog as literature. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? I, I think do, he passed away that. shortly after. But uh, it's just the entire ad was this long form thing of him just reading from the Ikea catalog and then pausing to like do criticism of it, <laughs> literary criticism of the narrative structure. <laughs> it's such a simple, it's literally just a guy sitting in a chair reading the IKEA, IKEA catalog. It ended up winning uh, gold at several award shows. I mean, it's, uh, you know, so it's the the simplicity of the idea. And, and then those highs and lows of of culture, I think, is what is what IKEA does so well. Uh, what else do you have for us this week?
0: Well, I wanted to talk briefly about this, um, maybe not so briefly, about this Heineken social experiment. Uh, it's called Worlds Apart. Uh, Pub- Publicist London did it, and it was... Basically, they got six. Uh, it had a political edge to it. They filmed six people who had strongly held beliefs, and they filmed them kind of talking about those beliefs. And half of them were sort of left leaning, and half of them were sort of right leaning people. and And then they ended up pairing up people who were who are opposites. So you have a woman who, who's a feminist and a guy who feels that men are are being oppressed. Uh, then you have a guy who's worried about climate change and another guy who doesn't believe in it at all. Uh, and then finally, uh, there's a transgender woman and then a man who. Clearly doesn't have a lot of time for ch- transgender people, and they put these sort of mish- mismatched pairs in a warehouse together, and they made they made them do something, a, a task together, which turns out to be uh, building a bar together. So they, they they you know they they get instructions, and they end up over a period of time kind of putting together a bar, and along the way they they get to be friends, and then at the very end. Um, they play video of their original interviews, where they, where, you know, where they state their their political opinions, and of course, it gets awkward because their new friend, as they've learned along the way, um, kind of embodies everything that they didn't, you know, didn't like or didn't understand. And then at the very end of the of the clip, they, they are given uh, a beer each, and they they're told that they can sit down at the bar that they've just built together and they can chat about their differences or they can leave. Um, so maybe let's listen to a, a clip of it here, and then we can chat about it after.
1: Cheers. At the end of the day, mate. By reaching out to people, yeah. yeah. And, you know, even if you wanted to convince people about your point, the productive thing to do would be to sit it's down engage, and. It's I've been brought up in a way where everything's black and white, but life isn't black and white.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm just me. Yeah. <laughs> Smash the patriarchy.
0: <laughs> I'll give you my mobile number, you give me yours, uh-huh. and we'll keep in touch. So yeah, I mean, I thought this was a really interesting video. Angela Natividad wrote about it for us, and her point was that you know, however contrived these scenarios tend to be, um, kind of in spite of themselves, they do actually reveal some truths about about human nature. Because I don't think they were um, I don't think they were staged. I think the the, the better ones are not staged. Uh, you know, and in this case, it kind of reveals like how we would you know, tend to rather maintain a connection with someone uh, once it's been made, even if it's kind of outside your comfort zone. I think this video, you know, really does show that. and I kind of agree with that. Um, on the other hand, you know, it, the ad has come in for some criticism too, you know, whereas some people say, well, it's it's a whole lot better than what Pepsi did. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of other folks uh, just kind of disagree with that. You know, some of the criticism revolved around um, this element of, of kind of forcing people who are, traditionally oppressed to kind of sit down with their oppressors you know whether they want to or not there was some criticism that that's you know kind of uncool regardless of of the outcome or or the goal of what you're trying to do and then you also have kind of a segment of viewers who are just opposed to the idea of brands doing anything to to to, to address political issues or, or political problems uh the argument there being you know that they're you know brands are kind of inherently compromised because they're they're trying to sell you something at the same time so I mean, I feel like that kind of oversimplifies things. I, I feel like brands can have an effect on culture. You know, we've talked about this a lot, um, even even though obviously their motives are kind of mixed. So, you know, I think it's, it's pretty complex. I think the, the thing about the Pepsi fail from a few weeks back uh, with Kendall Jenner, you know, that was so clearly tone deaf and, and a fail. Something like this Heineken ad, you know, there's a lot more gray area. Like, does it do good for the world, or, or is it uh, kind of a cynical way to sell more beer. I think it's up in the air, but I thought this was a success overall, this this spot.
1: This ad really resonated for me because last week... Um, I was lucky enough to attend this off the record event where President Obama spoke, and while I can't really get into the specifics of what he was talking about, in general, uh, one of the things he was touching on was uh, our political system now, and 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 kind of the inability for people to be able to find common ground anymore, and. Um, and this is exactly what this ad was doing. It was people kind of putting aside their differences and, and finding common ground. So, um, you know, I guess you could say that in some ways it has the the former presidential seal of, of approval. Because I, So I, I thought it was really effective. Katie, what was your take?
3: Yeah, I mean, I really liked this, especially following the Pepsi fiasco. I think this is kind of an example of things done right, simply just because I really like the idea of taking two people – and just showing the power that conversation can have and just the fact that you may have two totally different people with two totally different backgrounds and beliefs and you bring them together in a room and have them just sit and talk and it shows that we can actually make progress and understand other people. So it in a way it kind of gave me hope to think that, you know, things could be better in the future and you, we can find common ground with people that we kind of disagree with.
0: Yeah, I mean it's hard to oppose something like this unless you're sort of, Pretty cynical about advertising's motives in general. I mean, I think one one valid criticism is that almost anyone can get along with almost anyone else individually. I think the danger of of you know the times is that you know on mass we uh, we you know we we tend to vilify others as groups you know, and so I think this doesn't really address the group mentality, which from which so many political problems kind of spring from. But yeah. um, I thought it was really well intentioned, and you know, it's gotten a lot of attention, and and that can't be bad. I think you know something that really does does attempt to show how we can be you know we may be more similar than we think.
2: Yeah, there there was a popular medium post uh, called uh, the Heineken ad is worse than the Pepsi ad. You're just too stupid to know it, um, which is an interesting read. Uh, it's basically making the points that Tim you know brought up that. Uh, two things I mean the author says that it puts these arguments on equal ground which of course is something you hear a lot with climate change uh, that you know or, or to say with things like race to say that it's it's these are equal people because one is a racist and one is you know another race or something like that or one is transphobic and one is uh, trans that said I mean I I think, what what i loved about this ad and what i think it accomplishes that pepsi certainly doesn't but that most ads you know are incapable of accomplishing is that bubbles are very real and they're not just social media driven although they are right now this idea that you log into facebook and you see confirmation bias of everyone agreeing with you you log into twitter with your curated feed and you see people agreeing with you that's certainly very real now but that's always been real and so I grew up in Alabama, you know, in areas that were 50% white, 50% black, like seeing, uh, you know, seeing people of a different race was a very common thing. Interacting with them was a very common thing. I moved to much wider parts of the country. And racism is a lot more of an issue than, you know, than people people assume Alabama is like really racist. And I'm sure there are a lot of races here, but it, we, you know, it's very integrated. And you go up north uh, to some of these places I live that were 90-whatever percent white, And those people never interact with anybody. They don't interact with anyone who's gay openly. They don't, you know what I mean? It's like they just never talk to anyone. So they get entrenched in these ideas and they never humanize them. They never meet anyone who's just like, well, I'm gay and, you know. That's normal. Uh, and, and so I do think this captured that. I had a great conversation on a, on a flight recently with a guy who's a, a big Trump supporter. Uh, you know, I'm not. And we had a great conversation, very respectful conversation. But it's the kind of like if we had met on Twitter, we would have probably just been beating the ever living crap out of each other. <laughs> (laughs) But, you know, we're forced to see each other next to each other on a plane, and he's telling me, uh, you know, here's how brutal taxes and these other, you know, government regulations are on my business, on my small business, and why that's such frustration and why I'm willing to put up with a lot of Trump's garbage if it means finally getting to, you know— make my business grow better. And so having those conversations is something where you can only do that if it's a one-on-one. And I walked away with a better understanding. Hopefully he walked away with a better understanding. Anyway, I, I do think it was effective in that regard. So uh, It's a good thing but, they were only given one beer each, though. Yeah, they should have cut to like eight <laughs> beers later. <laughs> Just they're wrecking the, the bar that they had to build together. <laughs> right. Just smashing it. Oh, that's totally going to be the parody, isn't it? I, this time next week, we're going to be talking about the parody of you know the eight beers later of beating each other into the bar table <laughs> right. all right um and uh and lastly uh you've got uh well I'll, I'll let you describe it and then uh this is what maybe one of the only ads from this campaign it is the only ad from this campaign i've ever liked uh, tell us about your third ad worth watching
0: yeah well so this is on a bit of a lighter note uh, i wanted to mention this new george clooney ad for nespresso uh, out of mccann new york um, so, you know, Clooney has done Nespresso ads for years, you know, mostly overseas. Uh, I, I think, you know, what you were saying before, David, I, I think he didn't want to sully his reputation in America by doing too many ads. Um, uh, but you know, he's, he's really gotten close to this brand and they've convinced him to, uh, allow, allow them to run some of, some of his ads in the U S market. So this is his second ad for Nespresso in the U S market. And, The humor of these ads is always pretty broad, um, but here they came up with a pretty clever idea. Uh, The ad opens on Clooney. He's on the phone with Andy Garcia, and Clooney uh, doesn't have any dialogue, by the way, in this whole commercial, but he's silently on the phone listening to Andy Garcia. Um, Clooney's on a movie set, and it's pouring with rain, and, and Andy Garcia is in some sort of tropical paradise, and he says, you know, it's a lovely Nespresso morning here, George. And, and Clooney's all pissed off, and he he uh, stalks off the movie set, and he starts this sort of epic journey to find some Nespresso coffee. And all along the way, he pops up in scenes um, that are mostly from road trip movies. So he's making a trip, and he joins uh, scenes. He's digitally inserted into these uh, road trip movies, one of which is the, the first Muppets movie, which, of course, was a road trip film. Uh, Easy Rider's in there. Smokey the Bandit is in there. Planes, trains, and automobiles. And then there's a couple of films in there that aren't uh, exactly road trip films, but have elements of travel. So you see him, he pops up next to Janet Leigh in Psycho as she's driving up to the Bates Motel. And uh, there's also a scene from from Seabiscuit, too. And I don't know, it was really, really clever. You know, it was, it was one of these ads that, it, again, it's like really broad uh, in terms of the, the, the comedy. But it was really well made in terms of, you know, the, the digital... Uh, adding him to this to these scenes was so well done. Really cute idea, you know. Great use of celebrity here, and also just a, a nice goofy kicker of an of, of an ending. I don't think it's a spoiler to to say that uh, Andy Garcia at the end shows up to to the movie set, and, and George isn't there. Cause he was bringing him some coffee, so. I don't know. I mean, these Nespresso ads, they're certainly very, um, the whole campaign has been, you know, it's mostly run in Europe and it has that European feel to it. And this one does too in a way, I think. But um, really, really nicely done. I think Clooney, uh, whether you like him or not, he does a really nice job here of carrying every scene with just a look. He doesn't have a a single line of dialogue until he, he voices the tagline at the very end. Um, But, yeah, I love this ad. I thought, you know, it's a minute-long spot, again, out of McCann, which has been doing pretty great work uh, over the last year or so. And I loved it. What did you guys think of it?
1: Uh, I was a huge fan of it. I mean, it really reminded me of the fact that, you know, Clooney almost seems like a kind of like an old school movie star, like a classic movie star. I mean, as you can see from this ad, he would have probably been an incredible silent film star. Just, you know, how, how expressive his face was and, you know, how many laughs he got just out of, you know, my favorite was this just kind of very subtle, subtle shake of his head uh, as Janet Lee's pulling up to the Bates motel. And it was, <laughs> I, I, it was, it was a terrific ad. And I thought it was, you know certainly that uh, somebody who used to do a lot of comedies and has kind of moved away from that genre a little bit in recent years uh it was great to see clooney in this
2: yeah my my beef with these celebrity ads uh that people like brad Pitt do and and George Clooney do is that the point of the ad is always to like somewhat humanize the 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 actor but at the same time keep them kind of deified. And so the joke is always like, oh, a woman's walking up to George Clooney, and then she asks him to step out of the way so she can get to her Nescafe. You know what I mean? Like, that's always the joke. <laughs> right. Or the joke is like, Brad Pitt's like ready for this flock of photographers, but they're running past him because, I don't know, they want to take a picture of beer. It, it's always some stupid like, oh, and then the, you know, the celebrity kind of shrugs and it's like, ah, oh, and then they crack open whatever it is they're selling. It's the same pattern we've been seeing for, I mean, ages. And so this was, I went into this, I was like, oh, yay, another George Clooney Nespresso ad. And I watched this like, oh, that's oh, good. It's good. And and you get to see more of Andy Garcia than you actually get to see him in Passengers. So, you know, it's it's got a lot going for it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up the ads worth watching. And now it's time to move on uh, to our big discussion of the week, which is going to be Elizabeth Moss. Well, I mean, she's not here, but we're going to talk about Elizabeth Moss. All right. Here it comes. So, Jason, uh, fantastic uh, job on the cover story this week. It is not only a uh, very well written article, an awesome interview with Elizabeth Moss. Uh, it's just a gorgeous cover. I, I really, uh, absolutely loved our photography of her. Uh, she shared it on Instagram and, and praised you specifically, Jason, which I thought was fantastic. The writer never gets credit on yeah, in Instagram.
1: That was very <laughs> sweet of her.
2: Um, but, uh, I guess first, before we—I have a lot of questions about Elizabeth Moss and about the the uh, story and about her background, her career. Uh, but first, I just let's talk a little bit about Handmaid's Tale. Uh, this is something that Hulu's obviously been investing in uh, pretty heavily in promoting and developing and obviously in getting a, a very high-tier star. How— How much is writing on this for Hulu? How important is Handmaid's Tale to Hulu?
1: Well, I think it's a a show that is much more important to Hulu now than it was when Hulu greenlit this or picked this up about a year ago, because in that time, it has gone, you know, so it's, it's, for those of you who don't know, it's based on Margaret Atwood's uh, 1985 dystopian novel about a future, the government's been overthrown by a fundamentalist regime and, uh, many of the women are infertile and the few that can still bear children are kind of enslaved. Um, in that year, it has gone through this where it's okay. Well, this is like some crazy thing that could happen to the future to now. If you're watching it now and the first three episodes are up, there are these very eerie parallels to what is going on in society right now. So all of a sudden Hulu has this of the moment, uh, show that's in the zeitgeist. Uh, now, aside from that, it is also the, the the best original series that they've ever put out. And and I really feel like um, it's going to do for Hulu what Transparent did for Amazon and House of Cards and Orange of the New Black did for Netflix, which is where it gives it this kind of critical praise and critical cachet that that it's been searching for for years and i think that you're going to see elizabeth omas winning a lot of awards for this 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 show this year and you're going to suddenly now have hulu kind of thought of as being at the same level as some of its streaming competitors
2: so uh she is not just the star she is also a producer we see that a lot in hollywood um you know it's kind of a, a a I, I get a feeling sometimes just a vanity play to let stars be a producer, but per your story that that 's not what this is. she is a legitimate uh you know high level in- involvement with the show tell Tell us a bit, a bit about that
1: yeah absolutely um there There were two big reasons that uh, she thought it was very important to sign on as a producer as well. The first is that the, her role offered the entire show, its success, completely rests on her shoulders. Um, Much of the story is told in voiceover. The camera is right in her face, could not get any closer. So it's really her story almost completely. So first off, she wanted to be a producer, so she had some control over how it was shaped and how the production, you know, so so she kind of had a bit of a safety net, you know, as she told me, I I knew I had Matt Weiner when I did Mad Men. And when I did Top of the Lake, I knew I had Jane Campion, you know, I needed, I needed to be to step up and kind of be the one myself in here um, who could kind of, you know, protect me a bit. So there was that. And then the second was that she used her cloud as a producer um, to, to kind of talk with Hulu about the marketing campaign and really insist that that Hulu give this show a marketing campaign that was worthy of of how how great the show was. And I think her persistence helped result in Hulu giving uh, this show its uh, first Super Bowl spot ever for an original series, did some other really unique marketing activations, uh, South by Southwest, they had this uh, group of women dressed as handmaids kind of walking, um, you know, two by two throughout um, throughout Austin. And I wasn't there, but just the photos alone were incredibly creepy, incredibly effective. And she's really been using her clout to, to make sure that the show has the support that it deserves. And it's not just so she can... You know, adds, add this title to her resume. You know, this is something that she's really passionate about.
2: So, uh, Katie, I'm curious to get your perspective before we go back, talk to Jason about the interview. Uh, kind of what is your take on Elizabeth Moss's, as you know, what is her kind of standing within the pop culture scene? She's always played on these very kind of highbrow, shows. And so it's hard to think of her on on the level of like a Jennifer Lawrence in the sense that she's not kind of this Hollywood megastar. But I mean, what is your your perception of Elizabeth Moss?
3: I think, you know, I've always known who she is, you know, from watching The West Wing and from watching Mad Men. Um, But I think she never really had that celebrity appeal, like you said, like a Jennifer Lawrence would have. And I don't really quite know why that is, Um, you know, maybe because she's a bit more soft-spoken and isn't quite as out there maybe with her social media presence as others. And she's not really big on the film scene, but I think this by reading Jason's story and kind of getting to know her as a person a little bit more and how she kind of goes about selecting projects and how involved she is in the work that she's doing. I think that this will really kind of set her above and beyond where she's been in the past. Um, and she's also kind of a great asset for marketers um, because she has that kind of savvy nature of knowing how to brand herself and brand the projects that she works on in a authentic and um, eye-catching way. I think.
2: And and to that point, uh, we talked about in the story in the interview that uh, you know several of the Mad Men uh, actors have gone on to do quite a bit of advertising to do a lot of voiceover. Seems like. A- car ads. Uh, Jason, you talked to Elizabeth about uh, that. She has not taken that approach. You certainly don't see her all over advertising. Uh, what is her philosophy on on kind of what to get involved in?
1: Uh, no, and, and before Mad Men, she did do an, an ad for an, Exced- for an Excedrin that kind of famously, they kept re-airing it during the first couple seasons of the show. So she has done commercials before, but certainly since she was immersed in the world of Mad Men and learning about advertising, she hasn't done anything since then. And and her, you know, her feeling was, um, you know, she wants to do, she's not against doing it, but she wants to be you know, sure she picks the right thing, you know, kind of going back to our conversation earlier on about these, you know, influencers who just kind of cash paychecks and don't, you know, give a second thought to the brand that's giving them money, you know. She has a really good sense of her career and who she is, and and she doesn't want to stand behind a product unless she is either a fan of the product or she thinks the campaign is incredibly cool. For example, I think if Nespresso had come to her and said, you know, here we want you to do you know the the George Clooney role in that ad we were just talking about. I think she would jump on that in a second. You know, she's she is really interested in being involved in a campaign, and she also uh, made it clear that she would like to do an entire campaign, not just kind of a one-off ad. But I feel like if it's if it's something that. She would engage with. She would be on board, but there just hasn't been anything that's spoken to her yet.
2: So, tell us about *Handmaid's Tale* in the sense of what is this a is this a kind of one off miniseries or is this expected to become a seasonal show?
1: No, when I first heard about it, I just assumed it was going to be a miniseries. It was going to be based on the book. There was also a movie about it in the early mid nineties, and this is going to be an ongoing series. It is going to uh, not only deal with all the events in the book, but it's going to flesh out some things. Uh, I was talking to the showrunner who said, you know, it's in certain instances, there was a sentence in the book. That's going to turn into a whole episode. Uh, but then in, in future seasons, assuming it goes that far. And I think that it's, it's a no brainer that it will, it's going to flesh out the world behind the book. Uh, Elizabeth Moss was telling me, you know, she has a lot of. She was a fan of the book, but she has a lot of questions. Um, Without spoiling anything, you know, the fate of certain characters is up in the air, and she would love to to know what would happen. Uh, Margaret Atwood's going to be is a consulting producer, so she's working a bit in tandem with the writers on on where uh, the story will go beyond the book. But this is something where they feel, and this is Elizabeth Moss, the showrunner, the head of Hulu, uh, all feel that there are many, many years of material. In this uh, in this story.
2: What do you think we're going to see if this is as successful as it seems to be? And like you said, this is kind of a uh, the, a House of Cards moment for uh, for Hulu, a Transparent moment uh, that they've they've definitely been needing. Hulu is what ten years old now. I mean, it, it is a. It is a storied institution in the world of streaming, uh, but they've just never found that thing that that could really hook people. Do you see them going really big on originals from here on out?
1: Well, they've already talked about how they're going to double their commitment to originals in the next year, which is similar to what Netflix is doing. So I think they're going to continue doing a lot of originals. But what I will be really interested in uh, seeing if this happens now is much like Amazon, with Amazon and Transparent, you know, that gives the that gave the, the service a calling card now. So now people see Handmaid's Tale on Hulu and they see what Hulu is capable of. And suddenly you have maybe some creators who hadn't considered Hulu as an option before just because there hadn't been anything on the service that they absolutely loved. And, you know, now maybe they're going to consider Hulu as a place they want to be in business with, much as uh, a lot of people saw, you know, Jill Soloway have so much success at, at Amazon with Transparent. And that opened the door to a lot of other uh, a lot of other creators who are working there who who hadn't given Amazon the time of day a year earlier. I, I
2: maybe like a lot of people, I, I totally missed the boat on no pun intended on top of the lake Uh and what what was Top of the Lake? And it sounds like, you know, this is going to kind of bring a second wind to that one of, of having her back in the limelight. What, what was that show?
1: Uh, Top of the Lake was this uh, amazing miniseries that came out in 2013. It aired on Sundance at the time and I think it started the BBC. And uh, Elizabeth Moss played this this detective from Sydney. Um a lot of stuff going on in her past. She she returns home to New Zealand to investigate the disappearance of a 12-year-old girl. Holly Hunter is in it as well. Uh, it it did get some attention, and I think she won a Golden Globe for that, and I believe she was nominated for an Emmy. And it's going to come back. There's going to be a second season that's going to come back later this year in the fall, uh, also from Jane Campion. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it – I know this is a family broadcast, so I'll, I'll change what she said a little bit. But she said she requested that her character be a little – even more screwed up this season than she was before so um i think that this one two punch oh and by the way nicole kidman is also in season two so i feel like how nicole kidman started the year strongly with with big little lies and is going to finish it with top of the lake we're going to see the same thing with with elizabeth moss going from handmaid's tale to top of the lake Um, that's going to come out in the fall and i'm just as excited for that as i am for for more episodes of handmaid's tale
2: uh, Tim, I wanted to talk to you as our kind of, uh, well, I guess, one of our several uh, Mad Men experts, but you're certainly the one I go to. Uh, tell me about the, the role that Peggy Olson, and Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Moss's character, why, you know— we all think of Don Draper, but I feel like you really almost hear more about Peggy Olson. I mean, tell me about the importance of her role and of how Elizabeth pulled off that role in the show. Well, as character arcs go, uh, it was an amazing
0: character arc. You know, she went from being a secretary uh, to being the copy chief, and she moved around to different agencies. And... You know, it was really uh, it was a time when women were were not uh, expected to do that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, this is the 1960s, and and it really the women on that show. You know, Christina Hendricks uh, as Joan, and also uh, and also Elizabeth Moss as Peggy. They they sort of as the seasons went on, they sort of almost became the focus of the show. You know, obviously John Hamm and John Slattery were sort of the sort of these patriarchal figures uh, s- central to. Matt Weiner's vision of, of you know, how, how the 60s uh, affected the American psyche. But, but I really think that, you know, Elizabeth in particular had a pretty hard, you know, a very, very difficult uh, job to do on that show, which was to kind of bring this character to life who was very meek at the beginning. And then by the end, you know, the classic shot of her packing up her office and walking down the hall with her sunglasses on. Um, I mean, it couldn't have been a more dramatic, uh, you know, uh, turn of events for this character and i think she you know she's an incredible actress i mean in in jason's uh story uh you know he touched on it too just how how she can just carry uh any show with just a look like she can act with her eyes and and you know in 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 mad men i think she she had a lot of you know comedy moments to play with as well as some wrenching dramatic moments, and I think she ca- she carried them off uh, amazingly you know in both she can play both of those roles uh, you know crazy well and she 's also just you know going back to the the idea of why isn 't she a bigger star i mean partly it 's because she 's been in television for so long and she 's been in television since before television was you know the golden age of television. this is going back to the West Wing which was such a, you know, formative show, like an incredible show for for at least for the, for the first four seasons. And, you know, she's she's always taken roles, in, you know, the, because of the quality of material, you know, not not because their films or not films or TV or not TV. And so, yeah, I mean, she was such a central force in Mad Men. Anyone anyone who loves Mad Men, you know, can't help but but talk about Peggy as just one of their favorite characters. And I mean, it's an, it's she really is a, a force, and and I will, you know, I know many people, myself included, will watch *Handmaid's Tale* just because she's in it, and and, and it sounds, you know, obviously, Margaret Atwood is a, is an amazing writer, and the whole the whole package sounds just incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as as she picks amazing roles, and when she, and then when she takes them on, she she nails them every time. Uh, it's it's hard to find you know an actress that does that over and over again.
2: Katie, one of the ironies to me of of the Peggy Olson character is that obviously it takes place in the early '60s, at a time when you know women were definitely oppressed in the workplace, and yet. It seems like that character and and Elizabeth Moss portrayal really resonated with young women today uh, because it it really kind of highlighted that in a lot of ways that struggle is still very real. Am I right? Yeah,
3: I would totally agree with that. I think her role in Mad Men, she kind of became a bit of a feminist icon in a way. Um, You know, she started as a secretary and made her way up to become – you know, a copy chief, as Tim said, and she just kind of really took ownership of her career, which for young women I think is really um, powerful to see, especially on TV and, a, and in a male-dominated field at the time and still, you know, somewhat today a male-dominated field. Uh, so I think, you know, she, the way that she, you know, made that character come to life is really impressive and something that a lot of young women look up to.
2: Well, Jason, one thing I always love hearing about from our celebrity interviews is what surprised uh, you, you know, as a reporter talking to her, uh, we all kind of go into these conversations with a bit of an impression of these people. What surprised you about Elizabeth Moss? Uh,
1: I think what surprised me, and I'd heard that this might be the case and I was kind of happy to have it confirmed is, you know, when we see her as Peggy on Mad Men or certainly as Offred in Handmaid's Tale, um, she so often is kind of buttoned up and reserved and has to keep her emotions in check, whether it's because on Handmaid, Handmaid, she'll literally be killed if she doesn't do that or Mad Men because of just kind of the role of women at the time. Uh, and so seeing her in person, she she's so effervescent and she's so energetic and she's always smiling. And and it's just so different from from the persona that that she that you see her in on screen. You know, she even says, you know, the the roles I'm attracted to, the shows I'm attracted to aren't even necessarily the shows that I will watch first. You know, not necessarily you know who I am, but but it's the most challenging work. So she really is. um just this uh, completely different, uh, you know, uh, so kind of happy and, 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 and energetic and and effervescent, um, which if, if you just know her from her roles on, on, you know, on TV, you wouldn't be expecting that.
2: No. Well, I definitely recommend everyone to check out Jason's interview. It's a really one of my favorite cover stories, not just uh, this year, but, uh, you know, in in kind of the history of Adweek is, uh, I think, just a fantastic celebrity interviews. I'm personally always a little skeptical of what we're going to get out of it. Elizabeth Moss, I think it's just the, the best of all possible. So if you had least interest in advertising or in her shows or Mad Men, uh, definitely check it out uh, and just look around on Google for Elizabeth Moss and Adweek. You will find it and uh, yeah so thank you so much Jason for coming on uh, Katie and Tim always love chatting with you guys uh, we've got uh, so a lot of fun stuff coming up on AdWeek and the print edition in adweek.com we've got our media all stars where we look at the media industry and the biggest players there uh, we have our annual graduates guide to marketing and media coming out very soon uh, because graduation is coming up very soon so if you know anyone who's graduating or if you yourself are going to be graduating into the marketing or media worlds, uh, it's definitely worth checking out so keep an eye out for that and uh, yeah lots more coming on adweek.com and soon it'll be the can lions in June so uh lot's going to be happening. Uh, If you've got an email, a thought you want to send us, send it to podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com, and we will definitely give it a read, and we'd love getting those. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. If you have not, uh, we would love for you to take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. It just takes a minute, and it means a lot to us and helps new audiences discover the show. Thank you to each of our panelists again, and we will talk to you next week.